You have heard me speak in sermons of the novels Gilead and Home. Now I am reading Lila, the third in Marilyn Robinson's trilogy about people living in an Iowa village in the 1950s. Lila is a young woman who had lived a hard scrabble life until she met and married Ames, an old minister whom she marries and with whom she has a little boy. If I am casting the movie, I will take Jennifer Lawrence for Lila with some makeup to age and rough her up a little. But for Ames, I'd have to reach back for Gregory Peck. I said that Lila lived hard. Compared with her, Huckleberry Finn was middle class. As a girl, she was rescued from a wretched family by a woman on the lam. They joined a little family band of working hobos, always moving. Church was no part of their life. Doan, their leader, warned the children that all that churches wanted was their money. The author adds, as if they had any money for the churches to want. Now grown up and moving solo, one Sunday Lila ducks into a church to get out of a storm. There was Ames preaching. He was smitten, and they would marry. His kindness towards her was bottomless. She could hurt him, and she sometimes did, but she could do nothing to provoke his disapproval and much less his condemnation. But there were things he said or did in and out of church that bothered her. One day, Ames and his best friend, Boughton, another minister, were talking about lost souls. Boughton said that he had read about missionaries back from China, about how they had converted hundreds, and that was a drop in the bucket compared to all the people who had never heard a word of the gospel and probably never would hear one. Boughton said it seemed to him like a terrible loss of souls, if that's what it was. He was not one to question divine justice, though sometimes he did have to wonder, anyone would. Listening to that, Lila was stunned and appalled. By now she knew that these preachers and their churches were not in it for the money, but their notion of salvation apparently condemned the very souls who had saved her life. The woman who'd rescued her whom she loved, had not been baptized, did not believe, and scorned church. If her damnation was divine justice, Lila wanted no part of that. By then, she had herself been baptized, but hearing Boughton, she went back into the water by herself one night and tried to undo it. Lila also remembered Melly a little girl in her posse just older than she, who was never scared, who would poke a snake just to get a better look at it, who tore up her leg trying to ride a bull calf because, Millie explained, if you rode a bull every day from the time it was young, you could ride it when it was growed. And then you could go anywhere, and folks would say, here she comes riding on that bull. What faith in what kind of salvation wouldn't see and appreciate that kind of spunk with or without faith? What God would throw a girl like Melly 
unwashed, unsaved, and unbelieving into flames. Boughton mentioned a last judgment, souls just out of their graves having to answer for lives most of them never understood in the first place. Such hard lives. Ames saw that Lila was bothered. Afterward, he said, Mountain likes to talk about the thornier side of things. You don't want to take him too seriously. As a child, Lila had barely learned to read and write. In Gilead, fed up with being ignorant, she taught herself to do both. She pickpocketed a Bible from the church to use for practice. This was before her marriage when she was still squatting in a shack without electricity. In the dark, she'd wait impatiently for morning. As soon as there was light enough, she sat at the door with a tablet on her knee and wrote. She copied words because she wasn't sure how to spell them, and this was a way to learn. Primarily, it was the Bible's words that she wanted, but she noticed what they said. By turns, she was repulsed, baffled, and intrigued. Reading a strange passage, she would wonder what the old preacher would say about it. One morning, she copied this from Ezekiel. And I looked, and behold, a stormy wind out of the north, a great cloud with a fire enfolding itself and a brightness around about it. And out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and every one of them had four faces, and every one of them had four wings. Well, she didn't know what to make of that. A dream somebody had, and he wrote it down, and it ended up in this book. She didn't know what to make of it, but she did have a notion. It was a dream, maybe. Dreams, crazy things happen. That's a theory. Thinking, we call that. You're doing it right now. Compared with other animals, that's what makes us special. So let's think about this morning's reading from the Acts of the Apostles. The disciples are together. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. And the crowd was bewildered because each one of them heard, heard them speaking in the native language of each. You be Lila, wondering what to make of that, and I'll play Ames. I'm going to give you an easy-to-believe interpretation of that story and then a hard one, and you can think them over. Easy to believe is the scholarly judgment of my interpreter's Bible, published in 1952. Back in the 50s, respectable clergy, seminary-educated clergy who could afford it owned a set. Lila's Ames might have had one on his bookshelf. My father did, and I kept it. And last week, I dusted it off to have a look at what it said regarding Pentecost. It says, 
It is agreed by most scholars that the speaking in tongues referred to in this passage originally had nothing whatever to do with speaking a foreign language. Rather, it had to do with a kind of religious ecstasy which exceeded the bounds of rationality and was described and deplored by Paul. In other words, in the original experience, which the writer of Acts is describing, speaking in tongues refers to the tremendous excitement and fervor of this occasion. In a later generation, which was impressed by the spontaneous expansion and translatability of Christianity, used it as a prophetic foretaste of that event. So, some people got excited. Someone dressed the story up as a miracle and wrote it down. It's easy to believe that. Embellishing a story, we can understand. A story someone told, and he wrote it down, and it ended up in this book. Sticking with that interpretation for just a little, let's look a little further. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all of those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and so forth, all the way through visitors from Rome and Crete and Arabs? This list, as my interpreter's Bible tells me, was meant to cover every nation under heaven. On this easy-to-believe interpretation, that puts a finger on a meaning of this passage which is actually important. The news of God and Christ is meant for everyone. And anyone can hear it. It fits to Heights and Hillcrest, East End, Chennault, and Southwest Little Rock, and to Manhattan, Queens, and the Bronx, to MIT and UCA, to Korea, North and South, to M.L. King and R.E. Lee, and to J.S. Bach, Johnny Cash, and Prince. In one way or another, Christ will fit to any place, circumstance, and person, respectable or not. This answers an old and important question. Is the gospel more like laws of physics or like taste in music? Physics is true everywhere and always, applying even to those who don't believe it. Music taste is culturally specific. You can have Beyonce, I'll take Tedeschi trucks. Acts tells us the gospel is like both physics and music. It is universe, it's universal church, truth will fit to local taste. And though she doesn't know it, it envelops little Melly and her snakes and bull calf. Though she doesn't know or believe it, it holds her. Lila's posse is as safe in Christ as you and I are in Newton's four laws. I believe that. I hope you do too, because it's important. But I don't want to stop with that interpretation. Something else is being claimed by Luke and Acts. He reports a miracle. My old interpreter's Bible sidesteps that claim as though it were unbelievable or unimportant. If true, however, it would be important, wouldn't you think? 
because it bears on what this gospel is that fits so well to every race and nation. I'm fourth-generation clergy, and I can tell you that scholars now are more open-minded in this vein than than were those of yesteryear. My Oxford Bible Commentary, published in 2001, writes this. Luke reports a miracle of hearing, a reversal of the confusion of the tongues at the Tower of Babel. Some have speculated that Luke has misunderstood the phenomena of glossolalia. But among groups that practice speaking in tongues today, there are reports of intelligible speech which is heard as a real language unknown to the speaker. If it happens now, why not back then? That opens on a much higher-reaching interpretation of this passage. Someone heard it, wrote it down, and put it in this book. That's harder to believe, but possible. I own a meticulous book in two volumes by the very bookwormish professor Craig Keener that offers and footnotes literally hundreds of credible modern miracle stories, including healings of cancer, blindness, paralysis, and even death. For example, and I quote, Deaf and blind for two weeks and nearing death on February 17, 1912, Anglican, us, Dorothy Karen was mostly unconscious. The next evening, it appeared that her breathing and heartbeat stopped. Then she sat up, declared herself well, and went walking around. She reported that an angel had told her to rise and walk. Various doctors attested her cure, and x-rays showed that her tuberculosis-ravaged lungs were completely healed. Keener wrote his book just to prove that biblical scholars who had dismissed or reinterpreted miraculous miraculous stories in the Bible solely on the, the assumption that those things simply do not happen were working from a false premise and thus very likely misinterpreting the Bible. Or, if you like movies, you can still get out to see Miracles from Heaven, which tells the true story of Annabelle Bean, a nine-year-old girl who was dying from pseudo-obstruction motility disorder, and then had a nightmarish fall from a tall tree. Annie Beam awoke to say that she had met Jesus in heaven who had healed her, and healed she was. Jennifer Garner played her mother in the movie and was so moved by meeting Annie Beam and her mother that Jennifer Garner returned to church. You see, the gospel also fits to Hollywood, and so now Ben Affleck's children are going to a Methodist Sunday school. So, Lila... My advice to you is to take both interpretations that I've given you to heart. First, the gospel is for everyone, including Melly and Doan and all those others who showed kindness to you. Don't you don't imagine 
that the things that you love in them are lost on God. That is impossible. And as for miracles, you can believe what you want, but my confidence that they occur is high. I'm as confident of that as I am of the Big Bang and evolution. We are left wondering why miracles are rare, which by definition they are. A woman of your intelligence might come up with some good reasons why that might hold some benefits for now. I bet you have some thoughts on that. I look forward to hearing them sometime.